This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me once again, we have Dr. Mary Kay Ross. Dr. Ross is the Chief Medical Officer at Thorn. She's an expert on brain health, and she's also a good friend and colleague. Thank you, Mary Kay, for doing another episode with us. Thank you for having me, Bob. I, I love doing this with you. It's an honor to be here. Terrific. So let's get into the main discussion for this week, which is really pertinent to your background, a deep dive into the world of sleep. So just to um, borrow the title of Matthew Walker's book, Why Do We Sleep? <laughs> what, what do you think? Why do we sleep? I think sleeping is an opportunity, you know, um, for lots of things that happen to reset in our body. I think about our glymphatic system, which is, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like the lymph of the brain, if you will. It bathes the brain. It's an opportunity for autophagy. It's where we do our house cleaning. So when you think about the brain and you think about our body, Certainly, you know, day to day going through life, there's debris that accumulates, cells die, toxins, all kinds of things. And when we're sleeping, it's an opportunity for the glymphatic system. It is when it happens to wash away things, to clean things. Um, and um, I think that is critical to our brain. And, and um, a lot of that happens during our deep sleep. And so there's different phases in sleep. And as we get older, we don't sleep as well. It's just a phenomenon that occurs. I've noticed that. <laughs> and so it happens and you really have to, well, we'll get into it, but you really have to work at sleep. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, it's critical to maintain good sleep throughout your life. Now you use the term several times, the glymphatic system. And I want to make sure people understand that you weren't just uh, flubbing your words. You meant to say <laughs> glymphatic, which sounds a lot like lymphatic, but what's the glymphatic system, but the G lymphatic system? It, it actually is a system that, as I said, it bathes the brain and cleanses things away. It washes things away. So lymph, our lymph system, right? Mm -hmm. helps carry away things and is part of our, really our immune system as well. And in our brain, the glymphatic system, when there's been MRIs that have been done and when you're asleep and you're in a deep, and they've been able to differentiate the different phases of sleep. And when you're in that deep sleep, they can actually see the fluid come in and bathe mm -hmm. its opens more. And it, it's a bath. You're taking a bath. You're taking your a bath, basically. And you're, it's a housekeeping thing. You're really washing things away. 
And, and that is an optimal time for that to occur. And as we get older, and of course, if we have other pathological problems, if we have Alzheimer's, for example, mm-hmm. do not get into deep sleep as much. It's, it's just that goes hand in hand. And I think that perpetuates the problem. So then you're not really sort of doing the housekeeping that you need to do to, to keep your brain healthy. You know, it's a very important thing to be able to sleep and get adequate amounts of um, deep sleep and REM. So is the poor sleep a consequence of Alzheimer's or is it the other way around or is it both? It's a great question. And it's sort of like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I, um, I think that it's probably both because I think definitely if you develop Alzheimer's, you are not able to sleep as well, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But as you age, you're not able to sleep as well. And and mm-hmm. unfortunately, I think most people, unless they are, you know, a biohacker and in functional <laughs> medicine and, and you might not look at that until you it is a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that is probably true for most people. So when most of my patients, when they come to me, they've never really done a lot of thought about sleep and we work on that actively work on it it's a big part of what i do so dr matthew walker i mentioned you know probably one of the world's experts on sleep he says it's a society-wide problem because you have a lot of people that believe that sleep is irrelevant right that you know it's all about productivity a lot of people really do believe that sleep is not important and so they work as late as they can and they get up as early as they can and they brag about not getting enough sleep why is that such a bad thing? Well, <laughs> I mean, it. you know, like I said, I mean, it, sleep is huge. So we need mm-hmm. sleep for um, a chance for autophagy to occur. What's, uh, what's that? And so that is when our cells clean. Okay. Mm-hmm. House, mm-hmm. If you will. Garbage disposal. The garbage disposal. It's like, it's like the, um, you know, the, the housekeeping comes out and, mm-hmm and start sweeping away all of the debris and cleaning things up. And that's critical, but sleep is where we can create memories. Sleep Mm -hmm. is so important for, you know, metabolic function. So people that don't sleep are much more at risk for cardiovascular disease, hypertension. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other thing to make sure that people know is where they stand. Do you have um, sleep apnea? is another mm-hmm, thing because mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. also puts you a huge risk for Alzheimer's disease and sudden death. And it's one of those things where people may not realize that they're not sleeping well and that they're having apneic events. And therefore, you know, you go through this period where you have daytime somnolence and other problems, you know. So that maybe this is time for a public service announcement. What how would you know if you had sleep apnea? What what kind of symptoms would you have, or what would a spouse or the you know the person who's sleeping nearby? What kind of things would they report that raise red flags? So a person would think they're having sleep apnea. What does it look like? So so when you have sleep apnea, um, oftentimes people will, like I said, they'll have daytime somnolence. Okay, mm-hmm. they're so they're tired all the time. The day. You wake up in the morning. I'm not rested. And mm-hmm. then their uh, spouse may say, you know, you snore during the night. Mm-hmm. You have episodes where you stop breathing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're that person, you may not recognize that. Although many patients will say, I wake myself up. 
you know, I'm snoring and all of a sudden I gasp and I wake myself mm -hmm. up. And mm -hmm. that is certainly something that needs to be evaluated. You need a sleep study. And, you know, during COVID and well, really prior to COVID, but there's ways to do it at home and there's ways to do it in a sleep you know, environment um, through a mm -hmm. sleep specialist. But it's certainly something that is easy to do that I would highly recommend if there's any concerns about it. Because when you don't sleep well, first of all, it can affect your cortisol, which can affect your blood sugar and can affect blood pressure and all kinds of problems, right? Um, and so it's sort of this vicious cycle. If you have sleep apnea, you are much higher risk. And I don't remember the exact percentage for sudden death, okay? I mean, so many things, right? right. That, that is a key right there. I've done a lot of work over the last probably three years with dentists um, because there's a big, you know, this is a big concern that we, we kind of all need to address. So just to reiterate, if uh, there's certain medical problems that might make a doctor think sleep apnea, and if you're a person who's experiencing those problems, you might think of it, even if you're not necessarily tired and you don't know if you snore, but if you've got high blood pressure, right. if you've got high blood sugar that doesn't seem to be coming under control, even with a good diet, if you can't seem to lose weight and you're not sure why, then again, you might think about sleep apnea. So it doesn't have to just show up with snoring, tossing and turning, that sort of thing. No, but those are the things that a spouse might see, you know, in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, night. the spouse no. would know that, but maybe if a person lives alone, you know, and then they find out they've got high blood pressure, then you have to ask, well, are there any other factors that could be raising the blood pressure? That's right. And a really simple way to start looking at that possibly doing a nocturnal pulse oximetry. Yep, yep. Very simple. Now, I I love the fact that a lot of this testing is available to a person without seeing a doctor. I have nothing against doctors, but, you know, nowadays people are finding that it takes months to get in to see a doctor. And if they want to see a sleep specialist, it can take them even longer, six-month wait to see a sleep specialist. You know, you can go on the Internet and you can order... Uh, an oximeter, a little thing that clips on your finger and tells you your oxygen. And there are some of them will measure your oxygen all night long, right? So you can do a very crude version of what you might get by working with a dedicated facility. And I recommend this all the time to people who say, well, I don't really have the time for a sleep study. What do I do? Well, now you can always start with one of these oximeters that you just clip on your finger and you get a readout. You look on your phone in the morning and it, it tells you if your oxygen is dropping during the night. So, you know, there's no reason that, that that shouldn't be accessible to anybody. And there are also companies that have a disposable home sleep study. There's a company called Itamar, and I, we, we've worked with them in the past. They're a legitimate company. And I found it really interesting that you you get the equipment from them in the mail and it's I don't think that's who the provider is. So but if you say if you do a search for home sleep study, they send you the equipment, you wear it for a night, the data gets uploaded, gets sent back to them, and then they can say, Well, you look okay, or hey, you are one of the people that really need a formal sleep study. That's right. And they'll have a sleep specialist actually read it. Mm-hmm. And then um, you can even go a step further and just and do the test at home, the complete test, and actually have a CPAP recommended for you. 
If, if you need that. If you need that. That's what I'm saying. Yep. I mean, in other words, that full circle, you can do the whole thing at home if need be. And, and certainly, I think that's a great value for people to be able to do that. So that's one type of sleep disorder, which is a problem where the person stops breathing, their oxygen level drops. What about other kinds of sleep problems? And what's the value of doing hormone testing to see what's causing those sleep problems? So, I mean, certainly you can have insomnia. You could have the other extreme and have narcolepsy, but insomnia is probably more pertinent to what we're talking about. And there's plenty of people with that. And so looking at their melatonin level, mm -hmm. looking at their cortisol level is huge, especially when I'm talking about brain health, which is just something I can't get away from. Cortisol is really toxic to your hippocampus. If it's high mm -hmm. all the time, it's, it's not good for you. It, it also, it's our stress hormone and it's meant to go up at times of stress. You know, if you see a horrible thing happen in front of you, a car accident, you're going to have a surge of cortisol, but you shouldn't walk around and live and sleep in high levels of cortisol all the time. It's going to affect your blood sugar. It's going to affect your weight. It's going to affect your blood pressure. It's going to affect so many things, right? And mm -hmm. um, and so that is what someone with insomnia deals with. And to be honest with you, when I worked in the emergency room for many, many years, I didn't think sleep was so important. I, I was want to miss the day, but I was at work at night and um, I had a cortisol problem, a big one. And mm. so it is a really big, it's, it's something to think about. Those are things that we look at. So we have a stress test that we look at. It looks at your melatonin levels, which um, is a hormone, which actually we often people use it for um, jet lag and for sleep. Then we also look at the cortisol. And when we look at the cortisol, there's a curve that is, you know, very well known. And you look at the cortisol at four different times during the day. First thing in the morning really is when our cortisol should be at its highest. Oh, mm -hmm. Okay. And when you go to bed at night, you need just enough cortisol and not too much. It's that Goldilocks thing. And, mm -hmm. and so it's really important to know your curve and understand it. But also I think people, we all need to step back and look at how do we prepare for sleep? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it's <laughs> <Yeah>. really important. <laughs> that makes me laugh because, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Unwinding. Yes, it's so, you have to really practice sleep hygiene. You know, you have mm -hmm. to really think about it because if you don't, before you know it, you'll look at the clock and go, oh, it's 10 o'clock. And, you know, you'll stop, turn off your computer and your TV and unwind. There's no time now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, no transition. That's exactly right. So it needs to start earlier in the evening. We need to eat earlier. We need to kind of wind down, especially for somebody that has trouble sleeping. Um, mm -hmm. There's a whole way to think about this. Your bedroom should be sort of your refuge. It should be like a haven. You don't want to walk in and have laundry sitting everywhere and <laughs> the TV blaring. You shouldn't have a TV in your bedroom. You know, these are things that we all kind of make our habits and we need to really think, you know, do it differently. We have to relearn it. I think that's something, again, that Dr. Walker talks about a lot is that we have a built-in transitions in our society. And he, he really rails on the school system for making kids get up so early because, you know, he says that, that it's just not how 
the teenage brain works or the adolescent brain, it doesn't work uh, if you got to get up at five o'clock in the morning and, and start school at 7.30. It's just not good for the, the teen brain. They need to sleep in and they're not lazy because they want to sleep in. They need the transition time. So, I, I, and I think we've got evidence from cortisol studies, which are, I, I should say, you know, we talk about doing cortisol, which you can measure in spit and urine. Those are very well accepted in the medical community. These are not fringe tests or, you know, there's nothing way out there about them. This is in the medical literature that doing this kind of testing is totally valuable and means something. You know, you're saying we've got this, what should be a normal curve where it goes up in the morning and then gradually comes down and lowest at night. What do you do if you do that test and your levels are high all day or maybe they're slow to get started and then they spike up and stay up? What do you do? So I think I think that's um, a really good question because in my mind, the way that you address cortisol, and as I said, I am that person. My curve was above the entire graph all mm -hmm. day and night. Off and, the chart. And it was off the chart. And so what does that mean? That means that your adrenal glands are making cortisol, but they also make epinephrine and norepinephrine. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a very supercharged fight or flight thing. And mm -hmm. so in order to change it, it takes a lot of effort. You're going to have to rewire the way you approach things. You're going to have to practice some mindfulness. You're going to take adaptogenic herbs. That, mm -hmm. You know, we have phytosome here, and that's something that I use for my patients. Um, and then there's the other side of cortisol that can be too low. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes people that have really high cortisols will go through a period and then they just bottom out. Mm -hmm. And then what happens there? Those are people that get up in the morning, they have no energy. They have mm -hmm. nothing left. And, and with those patients, again, it's the same thing. It really does come down to looking into turning over all the stones, so to speak. If you're sleeping and having uh, sleep apnea or other things that are pro bothering this, you need to look at it. You need to kind of do that evaluation. Um, but I think that mindfulness is a, is a huge factor in managing cortisol. Now, I have to say one uh, supplement that I've had some success with is phosphatidylserine. Yes. Right. Sounds like a esoteric kind of thing. I, I think Thorne calls it isophos. Or isophos. Some, isophos. Yeah. Um, and there actually is published research showing that it can lower cortisol. Yeah. So for that patient whose who sleep study shows that their cortisol is spiking at night, which is of course going to keep you from sleeping, I tell them to take one to 300 milligrams of the isophos uh, several hours before sleep. So not, you know, it's not the kind of thing where you get in bed and you go, well, maybe I'll take this now right. and it'll help me. You've got to start planning, just like with melatonin. If you're going to take melatonin to help you sleep, it needs to be an hour before an you hour get in before bed. before you go to bed. Absolutely. Well, I am not a big fan of people taking pills as soon as they get in bed. So anything that you're taking for bedtime should be at least an hour before bed. What do you do for any kind of mindfulness? Like if people can't sleep at night um, and they're laying there, I have my recommendations. I, I truly do use mindfulness as well when they're in bed. 
I recommend, you know, you don't get up and go get on your TV or your computer, but you try to really, it's a, it's a rewiring in some way of yourself. Well, I can tell you what helps me, and this is just personal preference, is a listening to uh, certain kinds of almost monotonous music like Tibetan bells or that kind of thing. There are apps that'll do that. So I have an Aura Ring, right, that I use for tracking my sleep. And it's actually got some built-in soundscapes that you can use. And you can set it for 20 minutes and then it goes off. So I love listening to that sort of thing. I find it very soothing and healing. Now, other people like listening to someone who's gently talking you know, you're feeling very bedtime calm. story. <laughs> yeah, bedtime story. And, you know, there are a number of, of apps like the Calm app on the phone. I have it, yes. <laughs> you, you've got that one. I do. Um, yeah, so I do tend to recommend those kind of things for people who can't do it on their own. There is something about having this external sound mm-hmm. or an external person talking, you know, that might be a little different than just you know, quietly laying there and kind of hoping that you'll get there on your own with mindfulness techniques. Oh, yeah. Now, when I say mindfulness, though, to me, honestly, that's not necessarily what you need to do at one in the morning when you can't sleep. (laughs) Yeah. But I think thinking about it during the day and, and figuring out some sort of a way to work on breathing techniques and ways to manage stress better might be helpful. I definitely use the Aura Ring for every one of my patients. So mm. everybody, I have um, aura ring data on everybody. I think it's really interesting. And then it, it helps me and, and I have a coach that works with me to look at that data and figure out what are we doing? You know, how are we, mm-hmm. how can we help you get more deep sleep or more REM? And I think that's really a, a helpful approach as well. I like listening to the bedtime stories when I can't sleep. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. that soft voice and the, you know, calming effect that it has so yeah i'm i am a big fan of mindfulness i mean i do mindfulness exercises every single day you know focus on breathing box breathing all that stuff is helpful but i do find that i got to do that in the daytime yeah if i if i'm laying in bed um you know and i can't fall asleep but it's kind of too late for me i got to listen to something i do too got to hear something So I think we need to take a break right now. And uh, when we come back, we'll answer some questions from our listeners that will go into these issues in a little bit more detail. When it comes to your health, your body deserves the best. That's why Thorne invests in comprehensive testing, sourcing the highest quality ingredients, and creating the cleanest manufacturing processes that will provide unparalleled solutions for your health. It is this approach to quality and science that has earned Thorne the trust of more than 42,000 medical practitioners, as well as 100 plus Olympic professional and collegiate sports teams. It's also why Thorne is the only supplement manufacturer to be chosen by Mayo Clinic for collaborating on clinical research and educational content. Discover the quality and science that leads to a happier and healthier life with Thorne. Visit Thorne.com to learn more. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com.
And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, what is the difference between a sleep test like the one that Thorne does and a sleep study like the one that you mentioned? So the the difference is this. So the sleep test that we have at Thorne is really looking at your melatonin level and it's mm-hmm. also looking at your cortisol levels and it's looking mm-hmm. at that whole cortisol curve four different times during the day. And mm-hmm. and so that is completely different than the sleep study that is mm-hmm. really looking at the different stage of how you're doing during the different stages of sleep and what your oxygenation level is. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. The other thing that um, we want to know also during the night is our blood pressure. We should be givers, mm-hmm. right? And so these are other more more medical studies, if you will, when you do a sleep study that you're looking at versus the response that your body is having. So cortisol is your stress hormone and how your uh, cortisol is doing during the day, which definitely impacts your sleep. So the two are perfect complements, right? Because they're giving you information that is all going to fit together into one big picture of exactly what's going on. That's right. Right. So one is more, the sleep study, I see that's kind of a mechanical thing. Like, do you stop breathing? That's right. Does your oxygen drop? And the sleep test is what's happening with your hormones, what's happening with your adrenal glands, what's happening with your pituitary, how are all those things influencing? That's right. so, so the two are just really the perfect complement. So I would say anybody that has trouble with sleep, daytime tiredness, the things that we talked about, they may easily want to do both of these. Yep. So if a person has sleep apnea, the next question is, can I fix sleep apnea on my own with diet or supplements? So, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Honestly, I think not. I don't think that you can fix it with diet or supplements with the caveat that if you're that person that is very heavy, certainly mm-hmm. that can affect uh, sleep apnea risk as well. But there are plenty of people that are very thin and have sleep apnea. And with those people, you certainly cannot fix it with diet or supplements. Yeah, I, I have to agree that it's, um, at least at this stage, it's not a, a problem that is is a biochemical one, shall we say. If it was a simple biochemical problem and, and in regular insomnia, difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep without sleep apnea, is more of a hormonal biochemical kind of problem sleep apnea is is a different beast entirely so i haven't found a lot of supplements that help i have found certain mechanical things that will help like sometimes acupuncture can be helpful and there's uh, there's some new techniques that dentists are working on you know with there's like appliances mm-hmm. that people can wear that hold their mouth open hold their jaw open so there are other options besides CPAP. And oh, I, yeah. I bring that up because people go, oh my God, CPAP, you know, it's noisy, it's expensive, it's a hassle. Is that my only option? Oh, it's not your only option. No, the dental appliance is definitely an option. Um, there's surgery, which is not always my favorite, but that's an option. There are things that you can do. Um, and certainly losing weight would be one of them as well. There is, well, there's this device that it gets implanted in your neck that stimulates your vagus nerve. And it's, I think it's called Inspire or something like that. And it's getting to be really big right now. So I asked the question, well, if stimulating the vagus nerve during the night, if that uh, helps sleep apnea, 
What about some of these techniques that the uh, TCM practitioners use that stimulate the vagus nerve through the ear, like these little beads that you wear in your ear? I think, you know, something worth exploring. Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, that's 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 really interesting. Yeah, I'm totally intrigued by vagus nerve stimulators, but maybe not necessarily the implantable, the implantable ones, which ones. is, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, for somebody that's really in bad shape, maybe. So our afternoon naps a good idea or do we not recommend them? So I don't have a problem with afternoon nap. I am not a nap person, but I don't think after afternoon naps can be um, refreshing for people. I'm, I love naps. Okay. I, I mean, I have to say, because if I, if I have a day when I'm seeing patients all day, it can be really stressful in my brain to make a lot of decisions that have a big impact on a person's life. You know, I think, well, if I make the wrong recommendation, right. you know, the consequences could potentially be harmful. And that's, I'm sure that drives my cortisol. So hours and hours of doing that, uh, all I can think about is I need a 15-minute nap. So I think the main caveats that we get from hearing uh, Matthew Walker speak is you don't want the nap to be too long. That's right. 15 minutes is probably long enough, 20 minutes. Like You don't probably want to do an hour, hour and a half. And you don't want it to be too late in the day, right? When it gets to be 4.30, 5 o'clock, then it's a little riskier because then your brain's going, wait a minute. Uh, I'm losing my sleep signal. So this, That's right. your sleep signal is a, a chemical, I think it's adenosine, am I right? That yep. You you get a buildup of this chemical called adenosine, and adenosine gives you what Dr. Walker calls sleep pressure, which is the, the sleep pressure is the signal that says time to go to bed now. And if you take that nap too late in the day, you lose the sleep pressure. So that's the only downside is if you take the nap too late in the day. Totally agree. No, I think it has to be a midday nap. And I think it does. And I'm a, I can do a 10 minute if I do mm -hmm. and just feel completely recharged. There are some people that when they lay down, they can't wake back up again. Yep. And for those yep. people, probably <clears throat> not a good idea, not a good idea to do at all. Nope. So this person asked, why am I exhausted during the day, but then I can't fall asleep at night? Tired but wired, they call it. Yep, it's a term I hear all the time. It makes no sense to me. Why Why am I tired, but then I can't fall asleep, and then I'm wired all day? Uh, have you ever heard that before? Heard oh, that complaint? Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. So it's really an interesting thing. And so the person is exhausted, mm -hmm. and then they go to bed, and they can't go to sleep. Mm -hmm. They toss, they turn, they get up. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can't sleep at night. And this is completely related to cortisol. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is really interesting for people to know is that, you know, when, when your lights come on, so let's say you get up and you get up in the middle of the night and you turn the light on, you're changing really your cortisol and your melatonin, right? Your circadian rhythm gets messed up. And so this could be just a huge cortisol problem. Um, mm -hmm. and it also could be also melatonin because mm -hmm. the less time you spend in the dark sleeping, the less you're going to have. And, and so this is a perfect person really for the sleep test, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. perfect person. Um, and then, you know, it's easy to make recommendations on things that they can do. If you know more about what they're doing, um, that could really make a difference. 
So I have to confess, I for I had this problem, and I got an aura ring, and the aura ring told me that even though I was in bed for eight hours, I wasn't getting eight hours of sleep. Right. That was the to me the single biggest aha from the aura ring, is that just because of my lifestyle and you know how much I'm going, you know, I wasn't allowing enough transition time, and that. If I was going to get the the minimum recommended number of hours of sleep, seven plus hours, which is how much I need to get an adequate amount of both the deep sleep and REM, I need to be in bed for over eight hours. Right. Right. So that was a big aha for me as I wasn't, even though I was in bed and I would say I'm getting, I seem to be getting sleep. I really wasn't getting enough sleep. And I think a lot of people that... You know, having trouble on top of that, just unwinding, they're basically not experiencing good circadian rhythms, right? So I think, you know, the normal thing is you've got this up and down and in that circadian rhythm, you need to have well over an hour of deep sleep, well over an hour of REM. And when you get out of that, then the body just goes into full cortisol mode all the time. Right. So it's this not there's no longer an up and down. It's just on all the time until you reset that by bringing in the transition time that we've been talking about, the unwinding, the mindfulness, you know, allowing extra time in bed and just going, okay, maybe it's going to take me an hour to fall asleep. And if I, when I started doing that for myself, okay, it may take me a while to fall asleep and I accept that. But if I'm thinking, I lay in bed for 10 minutes, I'm not asleep. What's the problem? Oh my God, why can't I sleep? It's been 10 minutes. I'm not asleep. Oh my God, what should I do? Should I listen to music? Maybe I need to go work out. Um, <laughs> what happens is people- What happened? Yeah. I don't think people put all of that together, Bob. And then what happens is, they get up and they may go get on a computer. Some people think, yep. that, oh, I should get out of bed if I can't sleep. So I'm going to go out yep. here and do this. And they're really, that's detrimental to ever getting sleep. So I yep. think of sleep as something that we're all so busy all during the day. Yep. And we get home yep. and then you've got to cook dinner and you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And you're doing laundry and you're rushing around getting ready for tomorrow. And sleep is an afterthought. Mm -hmm. But suddenly now I'm going to bed and it's like, oh, it's time to go to bed, but now I can't go to sleep. <laughs> well, if you had gone home and thought, you know what? I've been having trouble sleeping. I'm going to put mm -hmm. this effort forward. I think it makes a big difference. I mean, I am mm -hmm. a huge believer in that unwind time and the mm -hmm. transitions. Um, and there's lots of things you can do to make it better. So, yeah, maybe you should, if you got access to a hot tub or, well, you know, uh, even just putting some warm water in your regular bathtub and soaking in there, putting a little lavender. There's evidence that lavender uh, really helps the body unwind. Uh, I recommended that, listening to quiet music. But we've got to allow the transition time. That's right. We've That's got to do that. Yeah. So what's the difference between melatonin and serotonin? And which one is better for sleep? Well, melatonin helps us sleep. And serotonin mm -hmm. helps us wake up. Mm. So melatonin is what we want to take for sleep. Melatonin mm -hmm. is our sleep hormone. A lot of people use it when they're, you know, coming from Europe and trying to get through the jet lag. It helps you sleep. 
And, mm -hmm. and so you would definitely use melatonin. Um, serotonin is, you know, what we use really. It, it is uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors are used for antidepressants. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's a pickup. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. going to help you sleep. So melatonin is really just the signal that says it's time to go to sleep. But it doesn't, taking melatonin doesn't knock you out. No. And it, and it doesn't maintain <laughs> sleep. And yeah. so here's the, here's the thing that uh, has never been quite clear to me. When a person takes a drug like Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil, the, which raises serotonin in the brain, at least that's what we think they do, when they start taking that, it's not uncommon for them to say, I can't sleep. Right. And that fits with what you're saying. OK, you're raising serotonin in the brain. You can't sleep. And yet, on the other hand, tryptophan and 5-hydroxytryptophan are used as sleeping aid. Right. So how, how does that work? So there must be some other signal that's going on. I mean, I've, I've wondered about this yeah. for years. Um, I have taken 5-HTP at night. And, I have too. And it does help me sleep. So I wonder if it's doing more than just raising serotonin or if it's the drugs are raising serotonin in a different place. So it's a really good question. And I don't know that I have the definite answer, but it seems to me that it's a different place. I mean, what mm -hmm. is blocking different place in the brain. Yes. That would make sense to me, but you're mm -hmm. right. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So it's almost a paradoxical thing, but it's, again, I, I usually tell people if you're on Prozac or something, take it in the morning. Don't take it. Don't take it at night. Take it at night. You're absolutely right. Don't take it at night. Yep. So, so melatonin is the sleep signal and think that's the critical thing. And 5-HTP, we're not exactly sure what it does, but there's pretty good data on it helping sleep. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between a sleeping pill and melatonin? And then part of that is, can you overdose on melatonin? So I think, um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes the more you know, the less you know. That makes sense. I, I'm thinking of a sleep specialist that I had come and talk to my patients. Um, she's completely against melatonin. Against I, it. Against it. She, taking it because she feels that we should have such a balance. But I really feel like melatonin is safe. I take melatonin um, mm -hmm. and um, it does help me. And mm -hmm. um, sleeping pills, honestly, aren't really helping any of the problems. So, you know, I'm I'm taking sort of that messenger to get to sleep, but sleeping pills are something you can definitely overdose on. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that they're safe. I think some of them can actually, um, and Dale feels, Dale Bredesen, that some of them can actually be more of a dementogen, especially mm -hmm. like if you take over-the-counter sleeping aids as well, it's diphenhydramine, mm -hmm. right? Which is Benadryl, excuse me. I think melatonin is much safer than uh, taking sleeping pills. And I think that it has a wide range. I mean, you could certainly argue that you shouldn't take too much melatonin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most people, it's around a three milligram, three to five milligram. Yet, you know, if you did take more, I don't think that it's as dangerous. It doesn't have the danger. Does that make sense? So melatonin is basically working on entirely different pathways in the brain. Oh yeah. Right. The, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, all the melatonin is doing is telling your signal, the body that it's, yeah, it's time to go to sleep. It's yeah. nighttime. Right. Right. Cause melatonin normally goes up when it's nighttime in people that live in a natural environment, not a computer driven Where it's environment. Yeah. Right. So if we, you know, if you, if you live out in the woods 
uh, it gets dark, mm -hmm. you know, in the winter, it's getting dark seven o'clock, six o'clock. So your brain starts making more melatonin, getting you ready for sleep in our artificial environment. That's all screwed up. Oh. And that's part of the reason for doing a sleep study is yes. to find out what's happening with your melatonin. Um, and the and taking melatonin, I think, helps correct the abnormal circadian rhythms induced by our society. Can you overdose on it? Well, there was an article in the news about a month ago about melatonin poisoning. Oh. And I read that and I thought, this is crazy. The, the, you know, they didn't make a case for melatonin poisoning. If you ate the whole bottle of, of melatonin capsules, you might not feel well, but there's no evidence that I know of anyone that's been seriously harmed by taking excessive amounts. So you wouldn't feel well, but it's not like taking or, a bottle of Valium oh, no, or, no, no, no. you know, you're, it's not going to cause liver failure or any other things that we associate with poisoning. So yeah, you don't want to take the whole bottle, right? Um, the, the paradox of melatonin is that for sleep, less is more, right? If you're using it for sleep, if three to five milligrams isn't working for sleep, then 10 isn't necessarily going to work better. In fact, sometimes less will work better Sometimes a milligram is all you need for that sleep signal. Right, right. No, that's true. That's true. The, then the last question, I regularly wake up in the middle of the night wide awake, and then I have trouble falling asleep again. Is there anything I can do to stop waking up? So this is a big problem. I've had this problem, you know, where yeah, you wake up. The 3 a.m. 3 a.m. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on with this 3 a.m. thing? And, you know, I do find that I can go back to sleep, but it can be difficult. Seems to me there's lots of things that you can do. So you can certainly switch, switch over and listen to calming music. You can certainly do the calm thing with listening to a story, but you can also try taking a time release melatonin, which can help as well and act a little bit longer. And you also need to look at why you're waking up. You know, some people are wake up to go to the bathroom and they drink a lot of liquid right before they go to bed. There's a there's just different reasons. And you need to really give sleep a thought as to why these behaviors are happening. Um, and then if there's no answer, then I definitely don't recommend getting out of bed and turning the lights on and, you know, getting up because really and truly that makes makes the problem worse and lights are very bad for your cortisol and your melatonin. And I like the idea of the time release melatonin. I like L-theanine for sleep. Magnesium mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. great. Magnesium helps with sleep tremendously. So these are all things that people can look at and, you know, find their individual way uh, to help with their sleep problems. What I find, and they're excellent ideas, I also find that when somebody's waking up in the middle of the night, it's often because something is bubbling up from the unconscious. And so even in a person who says, I'm not thinking about anything. So, you know, first question I ask is, what thoughts are running through your mind when you wake up? A lot of times they say, nothing. I'm just, you know, hearing the furnace going, blowing or listening to my spouse breathing. I'm not thinking anything. But I can almost guarantee you that your, your unconscious mind is processing something. The first question I ask is what's unresolved that, you know, your unconscious mind is chewing on like a bone because for some reason, when you get into that really deep sleep, that's when that bubbles up and then wakes you up. And all you know is, well, oh, I feel unsettled, but I don't know why. 
So, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why is my brain processing this? And then the second thing for stuff to do, I mean, often I will tell people, just keep some melatonin by your bedside. And the minute you wake up, you know, you want to take a small amount of melatonin, you know, with a little bit of water. Uh, and often that's enough of a signal to the brain that says, okay, go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Sure. Go that's back to sleep. Idea. The other thing I really like that I do, uh, you know, when this happens to me is I take Pharmagaba. I don't know how that stuff works, but I love it. You know, the I, I can take two capsules or sometimes more of the 250 milligrams and I don't see any ill effects from it and it can work like a charm. So it's one last little tidbit I'd recommend to people. Yeah, that's interesting. So I have patients that love it. I can't take it. I get a headache when I take the GABA. It's kind of crazy, but I guess we're all such individuals. Biochemical individuals. That's it. All right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Dr. Ross, thanks again for coming back on the podcast. And I always ask this, but if people want to know more about what you're up to, how do they follow you, and especially the new brain health program that's evolving, how can they find out about that? Well, Bob, certainly, you know, I'm at Thorne, and um, they can always go to our Thorne website. We have Take Five Dailies, which give information about topics that we're doing actively, and certainly I'll be on the podcast, but we have a brain program that is being created direct to consumer for people that are concerned about cognition. Uh, lots of people out there, for instance, people that have parents that have had Alzheimer's disease or family members or people that are worried and they know their APOE status, whatever the problem may be, we're creating a program that is easy, simple, that can be done in the home, privacy of your own home, and will support you. But you don't have to go to a doctor, and it's something that will help you identify your risk and mitigate them. Terrific. So everybody stay tuned for that. I think some very exciting things are going to be unveiled in the near future. Great. That was Thorne's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Mary Kay Ross, talking to us about the importance of sleep. As always, thank you everyone for listening, and we hope uh, you'll tune in next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorne Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, Simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at ThornHealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting Thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.